Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're still listening to the West Wing Weekly, even though you don't like it that much. I'm Joshua Molina. And I'm just, just the guy, guy who does, does the thing. <laughs> Of course, that greeting wasn't to everyone, but to those of you who don't like the show that much, but are sticking with it, I salute you. Even if you baffle us a little bit. Right. I want to start right off the top with a mea culpa. Oh, I wanted to start off the top by wishing you a happy half-aversary. Ah, <laughs> that's right. Now that 311 is behind us, we are officially halfway <laughs> through the third season. I made a bit of a mistake, so hence my mea culpa, or my mea stupida, as I like to think of it. The funny thing is... It is slightly unlike me. I have a pretty good math head, but making a stupid mistake is not unlike me. I'm more disappointed in you. I know. <laughs> I went back and listened to it, and you said, happy anniversary, and I just said, wow. I was a little surprised and taken aback, and I think I felt a little sheepish that I didn't realize it. You know, like, I'm pretty good with anniversaries. Oh, you felt bad because I was pointing something out and you're like, oh, how did I miss our half anniversary? Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't thinking about this at all. And then I just went with it. And I kind of started to try and think about the math while also still talking about the episode. And then it just went past us. I'm going to pass the buck on to um, Margaret Miller and Zach McNeese, who also listened to the episode before it went out. None of us are apparently that attentive. But then amazingly, we will get back an initial audio draft of the show. And I listened to it in its entirety, and it never occurred to me. <laughs> so the number of opportunities to catch what was a pretty moronic mistake were many. And yet, uh, there you go. So let me, let me own that. Of course, halfway through seven seasons would be midway through the fourth season. Not midway through the third season. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I was thinking third season, 11th episode, like we've done three seasons and 11 episodes. That, of course, is not true. So I guess the positive takeaway is there's so f***ing much more to do <laughs> before this podcast is complete. Yeah, in 2019. There you go. Okay, well, in this episode, we're discussing season three, Episode 11 of The West Wing, the title is 100,000 Airplanes. You know what half of that would be? Three, <laughs> 311 <laughs> Airplanes. That's right. Uh, this episode first aired on January 16th, 2002, just one day before my 36th birthday. 
I'm going to have to fact check that. Now. Yeah. Who <laughs> knows wrong. with you now? I might be wrong on the map. No. <laughs> You've lost all credibility. Yeah, that's right. This episode was written by Aaron Sorkin. It was directed by David Nutter. Are you aware of his work? Yeah, that guy's crazy. <laughs> he has directed tons and tons of fantastic TV Sopranos, lots of single episodes, a single episode of The West Wing, this is it, uh, 10 Entourages, 6 Game of Thrones, or is it Games of Throne? It's Entourage. Very nice. Um, he's just a terrific director, and he does uh, a good job with this one, I think. In this episode, there are two timelines. In the present, President Bartlett gives his State of the Union address, while Sam's being shadowed by a Vanity Fair reporter who turns out to be his ex-fiancee. And in flashbacks to a couple weeks earlier, the staff tries to accommodate the president's desire to announce a crusade to cure cancer. Oh, and uh, Josh is still making goo-goo eyes at Amy. Also, for this episode, editor Janet Ashikaga was nominated for an Epi. Whoa, Mm -hmm. editor Janet Ashikaga was nominated for an Emmy. (laughs) <laughs> I actually thought there must be something called the Eppies. I was like, wow, another f***ing thing I've never won. Uh, no. The Eppies. Janet is a terrific editor. She edited many, most, I want to say, of Sports Night, most episodes. And although I can't recall the exact episode, maybe it'll come to me later on in the podcast. I know there was one scene I was shooting with Allison. And for some reason, Allison was cursing up a storm, like very creatively and really, really foul language. And I can't remember whether it was my side of the scene and Allison was trying to get me either to laugh or to have some sort of reaction. But for some reason, she was improvising super vulgar language. And I remember that Janet was offended by it. (laughs) You know, she was in the editing room watching take after take right. after take of, of what was funny at the moment, but uh, she found it less so <laughs> at the time. This episode, these are the first three words, if you want to call them that, that I have on my notes. Yes. Frontal, POTUS, so too. Nice. And I understand. The flashbacks in this episode take place one day after our previous episode, one day after HCon 172. 172 is half of 500. Right. It's the happy half anniversary. <laughs> I like that we open, or that we get in the cold open, a little of Bartlett actually delivering the State of the Union. Maybe said that in the last half century, America won the Cold War and modeled freedom for a waiting world. I always love Bartlett the orator. He's good, that Martin Sheen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a real State of the Union address. Indeed. But we're not there with him. We're hearing him through the TV. And we're actually with Sam and his former fiance, Lisa, as he's going through watching the C-SPAN feed of the president. And he's kind of guiding her through what they're hearing and what she's seeing with these um, focus groups that, that, that they're monitoring. Right. Sam, like everyone, is uh, super eager to get a little feedback from the participants and the focus groups. So instead of a Teledonna this episode, we really get an extended Telelisa. Yes. Lisa, who by the end of the show, sensing Sam's discomfort, will promise to pass her notes to a colleague who will take over the piece. Never takes a note that I notice. <laughs> <laughs> Although she gets a fair amount of information from her subject, she writes nothing down. And so I don't necessarily blame Sam for not wanting her to write the piece. <laughs> she admits to no preparation and then she refers to notes that she hasn't taken. Right. Maybe she's got a phonographic memory. Yeah, there you go. Perhaps so. This little joke that goes on through the episode. Hey, is there a reason you guys didn't get married because her name would have been Lisa Sherborne Seaborn? I liked very much. And sure. it also reminded me of Murphy Brown. Did you ever watch Murphy Brown? A little bit. There's a character played by Faith Ford, Corky Sherwood. And somewhere in the course of the show, she ends up getting engaged to a lawyer. His name is Will Forrest. And then she has a horrible realization that she's going to be now known as Corky Sherwood Forrest. (laughs) That's good. I think just Sherborne and Sherwood are pretty close anyway, but then also the Sherborne, Seaborne, Sherwood Forrest. Are you saying there, there might be a link? I was wondering if Aaron might be a Murphy Brown fan and maybe picked her name. Perhaps so. I could see that. In the initial scenes as the president's going through his address, you can see little glimpses of that Sam is actually 
proud of himself. He's proud of the language and he's proud of the reaction that it's getting. He doesn't really let it show, but you can see a little bit in his eyes and the hint of a smile. But then he almost immediately tamps it down in the face of anybody else's admiration, especially Lisa's. Lisa says, hey, great job. And he just, he shuts it down completely. By the end, and the good news that, in fact, it's been a rousing victory for the president, and the numbers are spectacular, he's back down in the dumps again as he's with Lisa in his office. But you're right, a little bit earlier in the evening, as it's happening, he seems to take a little pleasure in his work. Mm Mm-hmm. Sam is really in a funk the whole episode. He's really moody in a way that I actually like it. There isn't a great, like, perfect explanation for why he's in such a funk, but he has this kind of angsty quality that feels very real, you know, that it's kind of, and I attribute part of it to just the being in the presence of his ex-fiancee. You know, I think that's messing with him. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think it's one of the strengths of the episode is that it isn't made super clear exactly what's going on emotionally. It seems to be a swirl of things. The cancer bit that I guess he feels good about having written when uh, the president is sort of pitching his vision for including the section. Sam's the only one who really seems to be on board. So that's been left out. I guess that's a blow to Sam. And I guess also having a reporter follow him around altogether is not ideal from his point of view. And then, of course, it's a a woman with whom he has a very serious romantic history and a botched engagement. And so that whole swirl of emotions seems not to be sitting too well with Sam. Yeah. He's saddened about having to cut the cure for cancer. But by the end of the episode, he's actually there with the president saying, you know, we can't do this. And despite many people having told the president, we can't do this. I think it takes Sam, who was on the same page with him, to actually bring him down. Like he dreams with the president together. This is good. You know we can't do it. Yeah. And the president only at that point lets in the reality that he's like, yeah, I know. But it's funny, despite everybody else, everybody else had been sort of saying no to it all along. He only really listens when someone kind of came along with him for a little while. Yeah. You know what I found interesting? In all the scenes during which that subplot plays out, I kept thinking, is there no middle ground? I get the reluctance to point to the fence and say, we are going to beat this thing and we're going to do it within 10 years. But ultimately, they excise the entire topic And it seems to me there is a middle ground where they could have talked about a recommitment to cancer research and the new indications that there is hope and that maybe, without putting a number on it, maybe there is hope in the future to reduce terminal cancers to chronic cancers. I just kept thinking, how come nobody's pitching something in between? And then when I went back, as I said, and I watched the cold open again, the little bit of the State of the Union that we get includes... President Bartlett saying, There is no limit to what we can achieve. There is no limit to what we will achieve. And I thought, hey, this might be a good spot for it. Right. It's funny because the reasons why they can't, that Sam and and the president then list, you know, they say, oh, the OMB has to score it. We need to line up experts. But the whole time, the precedents that they're citing are ones where they didn't have something similar. There wasn't that same kind of accountability when they said, okay, we're going to go to the moon and nobody had any idea how they were going to do it. Does he have to be specific? There's so many things. He also says that he will find and eradicate every single enemy of the United States and every enemy of freedom. Exactly what I was about to say. No matter what cave you're in, whatever you're, wherever you're hiding, he doesn't put a number on what that's going to cost or how that's going to happen. And I think you're you're onto a very good point, which is that the State of the Union is one of those rare speeches, I think, where you can sort of broad stroke it and get a little flowery and aspirational and poetic without necessarily having to bottom line it as distinctly as you generally do in a kind of policy speech. Right. Which brings us to the real world for a second, because in 2016, President Obama actually did announce that they were going to cure cancer in 10 years at the State of the Union. Yeah, why not? My feeling is anything you want to point to and say, this will happen years after I'm done with my second term. That's kind of brilliant. (laughs) And if it's something where the hope is that it will inspire 
people in public and private industry, I don't know, to reinvigorate that energy. I don't know what the, what the problem is in terms of the intention. And to learn more about this, we called up Children's Hospital Los Angeles and spoke to Dr. Leo Mascarenas. Dr. Mascarenas, what's your official title? So I'm the uh, deputy director of the Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases and uh, the section head of oncology. I'm also the director of the clinical trials program. Last year, in the State of the Union address, President Obama said, You know, last year, Vice President Biden said that with a new moonshot, America can cure cancer. Last month, he worked with this Congress to give scientists at the National Institutes of Health the strongest resources that they've had in over a decade. Let's make America the country that cures cancer once and for all. What do you say, John? In this episode of The West Wing that we're discussing, the president there also talks about wanting to achieve a cure for cancer within 10 years, same time frame that President Obama gave. And I wanted to know, what do you think? Are we anywhere close to a cure for cancer? Well, that's the vision and the hope and the newer avenues to attack cancer, which are being explored. And many of them uh, in the past were just a pipe dream and have actually become a reality. With some cancers, for example, you know, we're close. I mean, you know, not even 40 or 50 years ago, for example, a child with leukemia, you know, had less than a 10% chance of uh, living and was almost considered a fatal illness. Uh, today, we can cure almost 90% of them, uh, and with some subsets, cure over 99% of them. So I think there's been remarkable progress. The recent buzzword which everybody is really talking about is immunotherapy, and this is really harnessing the body's immune system to actually attack cancer and basically kill it and cure it. A classic example uh, is our president, uh, Jimmy Carter, who received one of these drugs, and he had metastatic melanoma and is in remission at this time, and this uh, disease in the past was considered uh, incurable. However, not all cancers are responding the same way, and we need to answer that. And I think uh, the cancer moonshot identifies this as an area of intensified research to kind of understand why some cancers can be cured and some cannot, and how can we address the reasons why uh, those cancers are not responding. There's often language around curing cancer as if it's a single disease. I think in the State of the Union, I can announce that I'm directing our researchers to have a cure for cancer in 10 years. Call everyone in. But it's really not, right? There are thousands of different kinds of cancer with the different causes and genetic markers. It's, it's absolutely the different diseases and even what we think we thought was a single disease before, like a single category. There are so many various subtypes with different genetic abnormalities and backgrounds and they respond in different ways. And so our hope is the new era will bring in what we call precision oncology, that is the right drug for the right cancer for the right patient. And if all those things align, then you can cure cancer. There's a mention in this episode, which was a signal transduction inhibitor. Is that still relevant in the work that you're talking about? It is relevant, but uh, again, uh, it depends on the situation. There's a disease called chronic myelogenous leukemia, which in the past uh, was a pretty deadly disease, and the only hope for cure was a bone marrow transplant, and that's where this drug imatinib, which was on the cover of Time magazine a few years ago, not a few, it's over a decade ago now, called Gleevec came in and changed the face of that disease. And wasn't Gleevec a, a signal transduction inhibitor-based drug? Yeah, it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Really, at this point, you could just make up syllables and we'd, we'd believe you. <laughs> uh, <we're Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but for example, immunotherapy, you know, like the drug which worked for President Jimmy Carter, is not a tyrosine kinase. It's not an induction. But what it does is that the drug um, actually takes away a signal on the cancer cell or on the immune system, which prevent them from recognizing each other. And by taking away that signal, the immune cell recognizes the cancer cell as abnormal and attacks it and does away with it. 
Do you think that it is valuable? Is it worthwhile to try and put a timeline on finding a cure? Right. Does that help or hurt cancer researchers? I think it really helps cancer researchers. And I think the reason is that if you actually have a strict timeline, you actually have an action plan. And you can synergize and get all interested parties and here, particularly, you know, the government behind this, uh, you have the big private sector. It's akin to, you know, President Kennedy many years ago basically <laughs> saying, you know, we're going to put a man on the moon. And we did it. And if he didn't do it, it wouldn't have happened. That parallel of uh, getting to the moon is drawn in this West Wing episode. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't even yeah. know that. <laughs> Are you a fan of the West Wing? You know, uh, I would love to watch it, uh, but unfortunately, I am so stretched that I almost never watch any television. In fairness, you are doing more important things. Is it available on Netflix? Indeed it is. I, I think I can get into it. I mean, for sure. I mean, the topics which I've heard being discussed is all areas which are in my interest. I feel a little bit, though, Rishi and I are now working towards impeding progress on cancer research <laughs> by convincing you to watch more television. I was going to ask, though, can you speak to the current state of cancer research funding? Is it adequate? Does it vary uh, greatly from specific disease to disease? It does. I mean, and, you know, I can speak from the pediatric perspective uh, because I'm a pediatric oncologist. We were very, very pleased when Vice President Biden you know, identified pediatric cancer as one of the focus areas in the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And we still have to see where the dollars will come in for, but I, I think uh, they'll find a way to get there. Dr. Leo Mascarenas, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks so much, Rishi. You know, the whole subplot about the possibility of a cure for cancer and then the response, <laughs> whenever someone poses the question, how do you do that? Well, that we don't know, made me think of a family story. My dad has a cousin, as I think almost every family does, who is kind of a get-rich-quick scheme guy, always coming up with ideas. Mm -hmm. I think I might be that guy in my family. Is that right? <laughs> might be. Well, let me know if you need an angel investor. Okay. I have $300. <laughs> so <laughs> this Cousin of my dad's, decades ago, calls my dad up. because Bobby, I got it. I got the big one. Imagine this. You go to your house. You open a can of paint. You paint a single coat in a room. <laughs> I heard and you never, <laughs> you never have to repaint that room again. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? My dad says, it sounds fantastic. What, uh, you know, how do we do this? Who's got the... He said, oh, no, no, that's the... We got to get someone to come up with that. <laughs> Okay. That's great. It also reminds me of the gnomes from um, South Park, which is a well-known meme on the internet. Well-known? don't know it. Oh. <laughs> yep. It is well-known. But if you don't know it, it's, uh, it's, it basically breaks down to three. They have three phases. Phase one, collect underpants. Phase two? Question mark. Phase three, profit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. So here we could break it down. President Noam Bartlett says, phase one, announce cure for cancer. Phase two, question mark. Phase three, cancer's cured. There you go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I want to ask you about a couple of other things. Please do. In the scene when we have the oncologists who are Abby's friends. But first of all, let me ask, in this scene, Abby gets up and takes a phone call during the grapefruit course. This is a huge faux pas as a hostess, I believe. Maybe she thought that uh, the president's really hosting this. Huh, there you go. He seems very engaged by the way he's not looking at anyone and not talking to anyone. Yeah, I, yeah and the way he says, Abby just went to take a phone call. Just kind of like, don't talk to me now. <laughs> she should be back soon. Yeah, that yeah, made me laugh. He's grouchy. It's a pretty brilliant excuse, the phone call, to not have to pay Stalker Channing for an episode. Very good point. You're exactly correct. She was getting a phone call from the producer saying, hey, you're not going to be in this episode. You're not going to be in this episode. <laughs> we don't have the money. Sorry. Yep. I do like the portrayal of the oncologist sort of talking around, over, and at the president, but never actually with him. He's just, he's just meeting the room. Yeah, indeed. I kept thinking, do they not realize that they could be pitching this guy. I mean, it's, it's funny the shape of the scene. There's a guy standing there saying it'll take this and this to cure cancer in front of the guy who could possibly 
set them on that course. But then it takes the president to say, no, wait a minute. Now you got me. Now I'm hooked. I'm interested. Sit your asses down. It's funny. It's the, the tenor of the scene is not exactly what I would have expected. Yeah, I like how dismissive they kind of are of him. I thought that that indicated how long they've been friends with Abby, that they've known him as kind of a somewhat disengaged guy who they maybe even think you know, look down at a little bit. Right, perhaps so. He's not going to understand this. So we'll just talk around him. Exactly. And even though he's the president and they're hosting this dinner in the White House, they still have the same attitude. I, I liked that. It's one of the rare moments along with like somebody like Albie Duncan, where the president isn't being treated like a sovereign figure. But in that scene, <laughs> there's, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Donna from this episode. One of the oncologists says, this they did, which uses a sentence structure with which I'm not familiar, except in stereotypes of old Jewish Americans. I was, I'm glad you got there on your own. <laughs> yes, that is how we speak. It's <laughs> really funny. It just jumped out. Just this they did. <laughs> yeah. Did that catch your ear? I don't think I did. I think as an older Jew, it's just I was finally in a line of dialogue. I understand. <laughs> What about this? Did this catch you? In Los Feliz, California? Yes. As a former resident of Los Feliz, a neighborhood in Los Angeles, I thought, well, that's not really a place. Oh, I was thinking the only reason he's pronouncing it correctly is because he's from L.A. <laughs> right. As opposed to Los Feliz yeah, or correct. Los Feliz or right. anything else. We say Los Feliz. Mm -hmm. I think he says Los Feliz. Oh, maybe he does. But in any case, it would be like saying, you know, we've got people in, I don't know, you don't really refer to the neighborhood, comma, the state, right? Neighborhood, comma, state? Los Feliz is not a city, is what I'm saying. Right. No, that's a very good point. I, and then, no, I didn't catch it. And it's a funny one, given that the show is made in Los Angeles, where they clearly know the neighborhoods of Los Angeles. But then I thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, people say Hollywood, California, maybe? Yeah, that's true. The Hollywood sign is a lie. That's true. Well, if you're thinking that that's a city landmark, it's not even what it originally said. It said Hollywood land. Good point. It was a sign for... Real estate? Real estate, yeah. Do you know the game Portal? Oh, the computer game. Yes. Yes, the moody computer game. Yes, I can tell you know it well by you, the way you're referring to it as a computer game. Is that Doesn't that just show how old and uncool I am? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't it like a game you play on your computer? Or I just have the computer, this the PC version? I think you can play it on a variety of consoles. I'm playing miniature golf, though, as we speak. Oh, good. <laughs> and as I predicted, quite a few people either admitting that they thought the same thing and now laughing at themselves, but in addition, quite a few people making an argument that, in fact, the president and Toby did play mini golf. Which is silly. As someone who thought that that was what really happened, as soon as you pointed out it was a joke. <laughs> but you know what? You'll see. Go look at the website. A lot of people arguing on your behalf. I disavow those people. Oh, by the way, back to the Sherborne Seaborne of it all. During one of the, I think, three iterations of that joke, I think Sam tells Toby that CJ asked him whether that was the reason they uh, didn't ultimately get married. And Toby says, That's funny. Exactly. He Without tiffled. breaking a smile, he tiffled. I wrote down, Toby yeah. tiffles. Toby <laughs> tiffles. And that led me to the concomitant revelation that I'm Toby without the heart of gold, and you're all the other characters on the West Wing. <laughs> I did that. We don't even have to take a quiz. I know, I know exactly who we are. I'm Peyton Cabot Harrison III. <laughs> hey, we didn't mention Lisa Sherborne, played by Trailer Howard, well-known for long runs on Two Guys, A Girl, in a Pizza Place and Monk. Just thought I'd throw that out there. All right. I like all the Lisa stuff as a device to learn more about Sam. There's even little things like, well, first of all, Lisa herself, this is a callback to In the Shadow of Two Gunmen. And it's nice that this is a long payoff. In the season two opener, in a flashback, when Josh goes to visit Sam. You know why I'm here? You want me to quit my job and come look for points? He's gonna win, Sam. So what does he need me for? A better campaign. Come do some speech writing. Lisa and I are getting married in September. Wow. Yeah. And Josh has kind of a look of surprise and he says, ah. And Sam's happy when he's like, yeah. And so that's his reason for not doing it. And then of course we know Lisa doesn't come up again, but we know that Josh comes back and he does convince Sam. And, and Sam is a little bit pulled by it, even just by the idea. He's like, Hoynes isn't the real thing. And yeah, that's fascinating. I, of course, did not make that connection. But now that you throw it out there, it's so unlike 
Aaron to play long ball that way, just because of what we've learned about his writing process. But when he does... But when he does, yeah, or or he hooked that little thing in there knowing he'd use it somehow later, it makes me wonder whether maybe I'll even write to him, because that, that really fascinates me. It seems like that little tidbit was thrown out to pay off in an episode like this, but I wonder whether he had that specific a game plan or whether it was more, this is a little pepper, this is a little spice to Sam's character that he was going to get married and didn't, and I'll explore it one way or another somewhere down the road. I think it's also, in terms of just like the simple narrative part of it, it puts an obstacle in Sam's path. Right. He doesn't like his job. He wants to leave it. Josh comes and says, come with me. And Sam can't say yes for some reason. What's the reason? He's going to start a family here with with this woman. But even the way that Josh kind of reacts to it in the flashback, like he's not just paying off the plot of Sam had a fiance. Later, when Josh actually interacts with Lisa in this episode, that feels like a payoff of that moment where he just says, ah, he doesn't say, hey man, that's great. Fantastic. I'm so, you know, congratulations or anything like that. He just says, ah, when he learns that Sam is engaged. And then when he, he does meet her, they don't get along. And, um, I love that that carries through from that initial mention. Yeah. We also didn't know in the second season opener that Josh had never kissed a woman at the, up to that point. <laughs> So that might also color his reaction to Sam's <laughs> right. getting married. Mm-hmm. What he says to her, Lisa. Josh. Still trying to get waved into Generation X? Still pompous jackass? Oh, you betcha. See you later. I kind of get the feeling that, so those are like not really jokes. No. There's real venom to both of those. And Josh gets to sort of say like, oh, you betcha, because he won. Like in the fight for Sam between Lisa and Josh, Josh won. He has Sam. That's true. Well, his criticism of her in that quick little moment seems to be uh, similar to Sam's. I mean, Sam has a couple of comments that I guess are the sort of insult equivalent, something about Mumbas. <laughs> yes, Mumba. Right. That seems to be the take on Lisa is that yeah, she's not substantive enough for these guys. Then we'll get a little bit more, a little bit of a deeper background on that in the final scene between Lisa and Sam. But yeah, she's there really to sort of open up our understanding of Sam. And she doesn't have too much as a character in this single episode. Right. But Sam's really awful to her. He's quite mean. And it feels like a product of his discomfort. And it felt bad listening to him like insult her over and over again. But then I love that in the end, it turns out that he's gotten it wrong because it starts off with him saying, So why didn't you get married? She didn't like me very much. We take it at face value, or I did, at least. I believed him. I'm like, okay, yeah. So, you know, she's cast as a villain, really, in that moment for me. Like, oh, who couldn't like Sam? What kind of awful... Obviously, she was a terrible fiancé. But then when when it comes down to it, when they do have that confrontation at the end, she totally turns it around on him. I was never cool enough for you. You're full of crap, and you think too little of me. And I didn't leave you. You left me. And you did it to do this. Yeah, that's funny, though. At the time, even when he said she didn't like me very much, I didn't take it the way you did. Oh. I figured he probably gave her a reason not to like him. <laughs> I figured the re- <laughs> That's funny. It's, it's again, a, a distinction between you and me or how we watch the show. I kind of figured, yeah, he's probably a workaholic. It's probably somewhere in that zone. I mean, not that I was like, well, she's right and he's wrong, but I kind of figured the ultimate dissolution of their relationship lay somewhere in the all work, no play nature of right. our heroes. Huh. And I wrote down ultimately in that final scene with Sam and Lisa, I wrote down Sam's a needy baby. <laughs> we have these, yeah. we have these moments and they're actually fantastic. Again, I think it's one of the strengths of the show is all of a sudden we get these incredibly vulnerable moments as with Josh and Amy and a little peek into the sort of sad Uh, romantic realm of Josh's life, we get a little peek into Sam's like a little boy suddenly saying, you know, I wasn't cool enough. And the kind of somewhat immature take on what was a serious relationship for him. We're so used to seeing them in their element that it's fascinating to me and powerful when Aaron puts them in a new context, which usually is the personal rather than the professional. And suddenly these sort of you know, super efficient masters of the White House uh, look like needy little boys. Yeah. And it's crazy to me how nice Lisa is actually to him, even in the face of him being a jerk 
throughout this whole episode to her, both in terms of the insults about her being like the shallow, vapid party girl. Even at the end, she speaks to him with admiration. And you're wondering if I'm going to think you've been doing anything at all. Often it's not clear to me whether or not I have. You have. How would you know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I'm, like, like, I'm really trying mom. to humor you, but I kind of ran out of steam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it's like, thanks, mom. Thanks for the encouragement. It's like, you're doing a great job. Mom, have, do you have any idea what I do? No, but I'm no. sure you're great at it. <laughs> I'm sure you're very good at it. I'm sure there's something. <laughs> I think we're at the point of total dissemblance that we should take a break. Yeah, perhaps so. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code WESTWING, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash WESTWING. And now back to the show. There are uh, two stray observations I had about Sam. One, this is not stray. I actually really love this. This is not stray at all. We get the return of off-screen Mr. Helper, who I guess only appears when we have State of the Union episodes. I don't know if you remember in the uh, in Bartlett's third State of the Union how much I loved the guy off screen who was like Sam Seaborn, everybody. <laughs> yes, right. Yes, he's in this episode as well. Oh, he gets his room announcement again. <laughs> yeah, as he walks in. Sam Seaborn. That's hilarious. I love that guy. He's good. He gets a lot of work. <laughs> he's one of those people. <laughs> You probably wouldn't recognize him, but he's made a steady living throughout decades yep. of television. Oh, and I just really want him to be part of my entourage, like to be my my advanced team. So anytime I walk into a room, there's somebody there to yell, Rishikesh, your way, everybody. And then everybody <laughs> uh, can turn around and clap. I'd be willing to do that for you. <laughs> Excellent. And then the other thing that I noticed, which this is a pointless thing to notice. Hey, that's my department. <laughs> but this is now what our podcast prompts me to do. Okay, so at the very end of the episode, when Sam deletes the text of the State of the Union, that he, the draft that he had written where the president was going to announce eliminating cancer, he highlights everything and then he hits delete. Before he hits delete, the Word document that he's writing has a title, n underscore science dot doc n underscore science dot doc and then as soon as he hits delete the title changes on the document to curing underscore cancer dot doc what the what and i've tried watching it like a few times to see like did they switch a thing where it's just they've just replaced it i mean there's no reason to because it just deletes text that you can see to a blank page and i also am not sure if i don't know why the title of the document would change Changes. but you see it change on screen wow i gotta go back and look at that it's a mistake of some sort or is it like a way that microsoft word used to operate back in the stone age of 2002 that i just don't remember that it like it was auto creating a title based on the text or something i don't know more likely i think they probably just forgot to input that title that they wanted on the original screen because usually you know they have it idiot proof so if there's any kind of using a computer on screen the actor just like hit any button yeah. and the screen will turn to the next thing we need to see yeah um, so my guess is it's just uh, an inconsistency of the people who put in the data that's what i was trying to see is if maybe it was like it went from one screenshot to another screenshot 
like an identical screenshot, only they named the blank document something else. I think that's exactly what it was. But then I, I was trying to remember, I was like, oh, I was like, oh yeah, I think that Microsoft Word at some point did used to like suggest title based on the first couple words in the document or something like that. Like maybe autosave oh, or right. something like that. But I don't know how it would go from... After deleting, I don't know why. After it deleting, it would change feature. to curing underscore cancer. It was this, yeah, a very silly thing to notice, but something I noticed. I'm tracking you down to my level. I'm delighted. <laughs> okay. And now here, this is a bigger thing that I wanted to talk about, which is the dispute, the central conflict between Sam and Lisa. In some ways, it's kind of playing out in a miniature form, the same kind of dynamic that existed between your character on Sports Night, Jeremy, and uh, Natalie. The idea of I don't know where the cool party is. Sam says, I don't know what the cool restaurant is, and I don't know where the Tommy Hilfiger party is. And kind of accusing her of being a little, like you said, lacking substance for wanting to go to those things. It's kind of the same thing that happens in Dana Get Your Gun. I think it's season two, episode 13 of Sports Night. You kind of get the longer extended version of, you get to see it play out between Jeremy and Natalie, but it feels like similar to me. Okay. What do you think? I don't remember Sports Night. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. Yeah, I, mean, I have general positive feelings towards it, but I, I can't get down in the mud with you. I don't really remember that. I don't know. Really? You don't remember when Jeremy and Natalie break up? No, I remember that and she won't let him break up. Well, that's later. That's okay. cute. This is like a really kind of dark, uh, dark episode. Again, because there's just like some real meanness, legitimate meanness that happens between the two characters. Right, Natalie, we're going to be in a room surrounded by people for whom cool means discontent. All of them trying to be cool, which isn't easy while craning your neck around to see if you could spot Skeet Ulrich. Jeremy. And believe me, there'll be half a dozen people there named Skeet. If you don't want to go, you don't have to go. I'll go. You don't have to go. I'm happy to go. You're not happy to go. I'm not happy to go, but I'll go anyway. Why? Because I'm tired of having this fight with you. I don't really remember that. You're very good in the episode. You should check it out sometime. I was going to say that. I don't really remember it, but I, I suspect I was good. <laughs> you were. <laughs> Thanks, Rishi. Your suspicions are correct. Thank you. I did notice, however, that the closed captioning person spelled Hilfiger with two Gs. Mm. So when Sam says, I don't know where the Tommy Hilfiger party is, the subtitler is saying, I don't know where the Tommy Hilfiger <laughs> spell check is. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, I thought that was funny because at one point, we talked about the idea of Sam looking like, you know, he was going to be in a Tommy Hilfiger ad. That's true. When he was off to his Christmas trip. And at that time, it seemed like he didn't know where the Tommy Hilfiger party was. Yeah, you're right. Can somebody please make a gif of Brad Whitford's oh, insane God. victory oh, dance? God. His reaction to the polling numbers? What the hell is he doing? I wrote, I can't look. I looked away. What move is that? I can't look. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Beckett of you. I can't go on. I must go on. I go on. Exactly. Yep. I That's can't look. He... I must look. I look. Yeah. I watched it over and over in a silent wonderment that uh, Brad has worked as much as he has since that moment. Yeah. Uh, we'll make that gift. I've taught Izzy how to make Western gifts. So Yay. She will. Uh... I, I will request it specifically. We'll put it up. <laughs> What did you think about the grammar within Sam's text, the stuff that he had written for the president about curing cancer? He wrote, new science, new technology is making the difference. Mm. Well, I didn't bump on that, but I see what you're saying. So if you take it as those two things are making the difference, he would be incorrect. Right. But I thought, couldn't you reinterpret that as a new silence? And a positive? Maybe, whatever that word means. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I know what you're saying. Yeah, that. Yeah, I guess you could. But to me, it sounded a little bit weird. And I mm -hmm. was like, mm, I bet Josh is going to have issues. No, with I was hung up on the fact that Lisa Sherborne Seaborn, unlike Vice President Hoynes, does not know to use a possessive, oh, the possessive with the gerund form. Because she says... You really are uncomfortable with me being here, right? You're not just, you know, being you. And she's a writer, supposedly professionally for a living. Well, she hasn't prepared, so maybe she didn't, hadn't prepared her research on using the possessive with the gerund. Nor does she have a pad or a writing instrument. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so self-conscious about the uh, possessive with the gerund thing now because I feel like I go both ways. I'm go both ways. <laughs> no, mine go both ways. No, yeah, no I can't even make a joke in there. <laughs> 
All the mistakes that I point out, I'm quite sure I make all the time. Okay, good. The first time I watched the episode, I thought when Lisa asks which one is Ed, which one is Larry, that Ed and Larry said, Doesn't Doesn't matter. matter. But on the second watch, I realized that all three, Ed, Larry, and Sam, (laughs) all say it doesn't matter. That's funny. I I, I loved that moment. I went back to watch, too. I had to figure out who said what. And uh, you're right. They all say it uh, with great humor and a smile on their faces. They just get it. They're Bert and Ernie and... uh, they're going to be... The other thing that was actually that was making me laugh, although it's kind of answered later in the episode, they don't look alike. <laughs> I mean, no. Nope. It's not like, how no. could we possibly tell these two people apart? But then later, it is noted. Do the two of you ever go anywhere separately? It's weird, isn't it? It's a little weird. Yeah. So it's really <laughs> right. just that. It's the fact that they are a twosome. They're only, it's almost as if they really should just have one name. Yeah. I actually didn't like that Sam also said it doesn't matter. I sort of felt like... It's only really up to Ed and Larry to be able to say it doesn't matter. That's a joke that no one else gets to make. Yeah, well, it's, de- it's a moment that takes Sam down a peg in my esteem and Ed and Larry up a peg. <laughs> oh, so you you feel the same way? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He's being a dick and they're being super cool. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about Toby for a second. Sure. I like discovering that Toby has a superpower of knowing exactly how many words are in things. How many words in the Gettysburg Address? 266. And the Ten Commandments? 173. I know. I was like, really? (laughs) I just want to be like, uh, Toby, how many words on the back of this Frosted Flakes box? (laughs) (laughs) That would be funny if he... uh, It's funny that you mention that, because my sister Toby has a kind of superpower with words, which is that if you give her any sentence or a series of sentences, she can tell you the number of syllables very quickly. (laughs) I don't know how she does it. Yes. Wow. Yeah, it's almost akin to Toby Ziegler's ability to know the number of words in any given speech. Where did that superpower come from? Mm, I don't know, but I sense a three-minute interview in (laughs) an upcoming podcast. Yeah, where we'll just ask her a question and then immediately follow it up with how many syllables was that? Right. I was even willing to accept that perhaps he knows the number of words in the Gettysburg Address, but the Ten Commandments? I mean, okay, the Gettysburg Address might be a thing, you know, speechwriters know, or, you know, could be speechwriter nerddom. But the Ten Commandments, what a random... My first thought was ten. Then I was like, no. (laughs) Well, here's my issue with uh, knowing how many words are in the Ten Commandments. That wasn't written in English. Oh, snap. I mean, which translation are you using? Mm-hmm. As Toby is someone who is fond of text interpretation and is someone who regularly goes to temple, he knows all about, I would guess, he knows all about the mutability of translation. So what's he talking about? Wh- well, what version well, though we've ten- seen him, he goes to a synagogue where he doesn't know about the mutability of your cell phone, <laughs> if you recall. <laughs> oh, man. I'm throwing down Rishi style Mike now. drop. <laughs> Wow. It was very good. I feel good about that. Yeah. <laughs> Back to my point. You know what I'm saying. You get my point. I do. Absolutely. Yes. That's very, that would not have occurred to me. I mean, we've even had, as we've discovered, there are discrepancies in what the order of the commandments actually is. Oh, and he made the mistake. And he made the mistake. Honor thy father is the third commandment. So now I don't trust him at all about the the commandments, let alone how many words there are. That's a very valid point indeed. He got the the order of the commandments wrong. I know how many words, (laughs) but I don't know the order. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But the Gettysburg Address, I would have gone with that. Sure. I also like that Toby can't be alone with his thoughts. You know, he's working on the speech. He's like, don't ask me about the speech. And and Josh is humoring him as he's kind of struggling with it. And then he, he's going to go get some pie. And he asks, he almost pleads with Josh, come with me. And I think because he just, he can't, he doesn't want to stew. He wants pie. <laughs> he doesn't want to stew. He doesn't want to stew. <laughs> He wants, oh God. Yeah. He doesn't want a stew. He wants a pie. Ah, damn you. I'm just here to derail you with with dad jokes. It's really good. Just trying to give the haters something to latch onto for this episode. I love it. 
I also like that Toby is Josh's and has been Josh's co-conspirator in his plans to court Amy. You know, in the previous episode, he helps him strategize around, around, uh, well, I mean, unwillingly helps him strategize around trying to um, find some source of tension to bring to Amy around the State of the Union. And then he asks him. How did it end up going last night? With Amy Gardner? Yeah. Very, very well. Yes. <laughs> it's funny, actually, making me think of two things. One, the just overall questionability of going to Toby for romantic advice. <laughs> but if anyone would, it would be Josh. And yeah. also, we haven't discussed the remarkably ill-advised stratagem of telling Amy that her boyfriend doesn't really care about her personally, but right. is simply using her to court the female vote. Right. Women's groups started hedging, saying there aren't enough women in Congress. Tandy needs women. Now hasn't endorsed him yet. It's January. Yeah, still, when did he start going out with you? A week after Lieberman announced. Wow. Bad well, misstep. I will say, I will say, Josh didn't go to Toby for romantic advice. He went to him for uh, policy advice to ask, what's the thing that I can use to start a fight with the Women's Leadership Coalition? This is true. And then Toby, yeah, kind of unsolicited, says, hey, you know, this thing is happening with her. I just, I love that Toby's in on the gossip, that he knows who's dating whom. And yeah, what does, he says, I know everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what Josh says later. Oh, when, you're when right. Amy's you're like, right. how did you know that? Um, he's like, well, Toby told me, I guess was, would be a less suave answer in that moment. But yeah, Toby's just feeding some intel to Josh. It's so great. But then, yeah, it is incredibly tactless to drop that on Amy. But of course, I think it's also, he's borne out, like he, he gets proven correct in, in using it. It takes a couple weeks, but I well, think, well, you see that same moment play out in miniature between Toby and Josh, right? I don't think he's courting Amy Gardner. I think he's courting women. I don't think you're right. Why? Because that's ridiculous. Really? No, it's not ridiculous. Of course you're right. Like, he, at first he tosses it off because, like, there's no way. And then he thinks about it. He's like, yeah, of course, that makes absolute sense. Because he thinks about the strategy of that kind of move and the context and stuff. I feel like between the past and the present, within the timelines of this episode, Amy is coming to the same place. And you see at the end, when Josh says, go ahead, photo op, she goes with Congressman Tandy, but she stops and she gives Josh a look that is having an effect as much as she's defending him and saying like, here are all the reasons why he's not, you know, he's not scared of Nan Lieberman. And she has all her stats and, and facts about why Josh is wrong, but you can tell he has pierced the uh, Absolutely. layer of doubt. Although I think it's unclear to the viewer that he is necessarily correct. Yeah. He wants her to be with the photo op. And there's also, a, there's another way of reading that he wants her to be with him. And you oh, know, of course. Yeah. It's small of him to assume that this intelligent, attractive, funny, accomplished woman for sure could only be being used by this guy because oh, yeah. she might be. Yeah, completely understand why it's incredibly insulting to her. It seems like a not rare case of Josh being both entirely correct and completely insulting. Yeah, he clearly might be onto something. That moment with the photo op seems to indicate yeah. that perhaps he wants to use her as a prop for right. press. Um, I like that we don't know for sure. Right. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's what's so insidious about what he's done, is he's planted this seed of doubt in her mind. Right. And now everybody sees it. We see it. She sees it. Right. <laughs> what's interesting is with the tension between Amy and Josh, there is suddenly really none between Joey and Josh. Not suddenly, I guess the opposite of suddenly. But what used to be such a great kind of flirty dynamic is really not there. They're really just buddies now. Yeah, it was almost a little, I felt a little bit sad to see that uh, tension deflated or dissipated. Because mm -hmm. I, I like the idea of them together. Although, yeah, I like Amy and Josh together too. Yeah, we also figured out that Joey was too good for Josh anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I was thinking about with uh, Sam, Sam's getting excited in this episode about curing cancer felt like a continuation of something that we had started to see develop when he was talking about the book recently, the book that the photographer was going to do, the tell-all. When CJ sort of calls him out on sweating the small stuff because he can't do anything about the MS, the book was small stuff and the book was sort of petty in and of itself and his response to it was arguably maybe also petty. In, in any case, the effort was towards something petty. Whereas curing cancer, I think, also feels like he gets to bring his powers to bear on something. You know, he gets to leave this sense of 
impotency that he's had around the MS and everything, they get to actually like really do something and really run on something. And so this is a grand gesture that actually means something and can like fire him up. Do you think there's any chance in a macro sense that Sorkin is toying with Rob Lowe by getting him all excited about a subplot as if he's giving him something really meaty that's going to matter? In terms of like a long arc that this is going to be like over several episodes? Right. So like Sam, Rob can get excited that he's being given more to do. I'm really just, I'm trying to stir the pot. (laughs) I I would throw the comment. I think that you're right, at least not, maybe not in terms of like a multi-episode arc, but I did think that there must have been some kind of, you know, like we'd been saying, Sam's had nothing to do this season. And suddenly he's had a couple of good Sam-focused episodes. And I don't know if that's just, you know, the way the course of things play out, or if there was some sense of like, all right, we really need to give Rob Lowe some real work here. And so in response to that, Aaron was like, okay, here's a great Sam story. Perhaps so, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I'm texting you a link right now, Josh, a YouTube link. Mary Louise Parker is really great at taking a line like, don't talk to me, and giving it a little bit of flavor every single time in a way that changes it and (laughs) adds to it. I love it. it. Later on, we'll see in another episode, this is something that's stuck in my head and that I sing along to, much like the uh, president's old map. She said, the way she answers the phone, often coming up, she says, hello, you know, and then somebody'll be like, hey, it's Josh. And she says, hello. It's just the <laughs> way she repeats that line with a little bit, with slightly different intonation. Intonation. is great. And so the way she's like, okay. don't talk to me. Look. Don't talk to me. We'll change this. You're talking up. to me. Perhaps. Don't talk to me. And because I had just seen it, it reminded me of this uh, incredible clip that I've seen of Jerry Seinfeld and Kesha. Did you see this? No, I read about it. Oh my God. You have to watch. No, I just texted to you. You have Can to I watch, watch it, it this moment? Right now. Yeah. I'm tired most of the time. Gosh, I love you so much. Oh, thanks. Can I give you a hug? No, thanks. Please? No, thanks. A little one. Yeah, no, thanks. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh, if only life could be made up. Only of moments like that. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, the way he just, uh, one, the way that he switches from, oh, thanks, to, no, thanks. Is <laughs> yeah. Like, it rhymes. I see, I see now where you're going. It's fantastic. <laughs> and then, uh, no, thanks. No, thanks. No, thanks. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's now reminding me of a uh, classic scene in The Wire. I want to say maybe season one. Oh, in which between all say bunk is, and, yes. Right? Yep. Uh, it's really great. Yeah. Dominic West and Wendell Pierce. I should shout out the two actors for that oh, amazing yeah, scene. And we can, um, I don't know, I guess maybe we can't link to it, but I recommend people take a look. I I'll was find gonna, the info on, this, on that scene. Somewhere in the deeper recesses of my brain, I knew their names, but I still was just going to say Bunk and McNulty. The one thing that annoyed me a little bit in this episode, it happened not once, but twice with characters asking what the stakes were of the State of the Union address. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Lisa asks in a moment that feels kind of very like, this is important TV, you know, as Sam's talking about when they're preparing for the State of the Union, he's like, well, first you got to do this, and then you got to do this, and then you realize you're nowhere. And there's like, you know, some drums behind it and stuff. And then she's like, how high are the stakes? How high can you count? (laughs) What did these speakers go up to? Which is a little bit strange. Like, how high are the stakes? They're up to 1,000 stakes. (laughs) I can count higher than that. It's up to 1 million stakes. (laughs) 1 million stakes. Yeah, you're right. That's an odd moment. But then even more confusing, Charlie asks how high the stakes are. Like, as if he hasn't been around for all the other states of the union. Right. I think they're trying to get us to realize how high the stakes are. Yeah. I mean, he asks, you know, he asks Joey how high the stakes, and she says, If he doesn't park the state of the union... And I mean deep. It'll be his last one. And that I think is actually like relevant information that like, yes, this is important because this is going to determine the future. But I just wish it had been posed somehow in a different way. I guess with Lisa, again, it really shows how little research Lisa has done. I was going to say the same thing. Why you really didn't prepare. Yeah. And again, Charlie knows what the stakes are. He knows what's at hand. He knows what the trouble is. So At least they avoided the phrase stakes of the union nope nope i award you no stakes fair enough how low does it go (laughs) how low can you count negative 35 stakes
By the way, it just occurs to me that I, I actually, I think I undersold my sister's superpower. I believe what my sister Toby can do, in fact, is listen to a sentence or two and tell you how many letters are in it. What? She does a weird kind of like chism bop thing with her fingers as you speak and then tells you how many letters in your utterance. That's crazy that she can do that. Right? I assume she still has the, uh, the gift. I'll have to check in with her. That is a really remarkable and utterly useless superpower. Truly useless, yes. <laughs> Which reminds me of Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog and the uh, character played by... Um, Are you referring to a musical? I am referring to a musical. It reminds me of the musical... Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, in which Simon Helberg plays a character with the superpower to make things moist. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. (laughs) Oh, there's a moment that has been gift in this episode, which is um, the president says, Somebody get these guys some pie. And watching it this time, I was thinking, you know, Toby's really the only one who wanted pie. Sam has never mentioned wanting pie at all. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) Like a Rob Lowe, he doesn't eat pie. No. Not often. He just wants a wife who will tell him that he's doing a good job and and really understand. Oh, there's another thing. When Sam is pacing around feeling anxious about the lack of response in the early numbers from the speech, the reaction, and uh, Joey's like, it's just the first 20 minutes. And he's like, we did internet commerce in the first 20 minutes. (laughs) Like, and he can't believe that that didn't like just bring him out of their seats. Right. Come on. (laughs) That's funny. Well, Josh... Thus ends another episode of the West Wing Weekly. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for being joined. (laughs) And thanks to you listeners for joining us as well. If you want to check out any of the past episodes of the West Wing Weekly, you can find them wherever you found this one, on iTunes or some other podcast app, or on our own website, thewestwingweekly.com. Thank you to those who continue to support the podcast by hitting the donate button. And thank you to those who have purchased the official West Wing lapel pin, which is available at westwingweekly.com slash pin. I still get a thrill every single time we see someone post a picture of their lapel pin on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram. We're on all of those places. You can tag us in your photo of your what's next West Wing Weekly lapel pin. Feel free to use hashtag Bartlett's Army to show how many of us there really are. I was delighted that just last night they re-ran my episode of To Tell the Truth, and the number of people who noticed that I was wearing the lapel pin during that appearance made me very happy. Additionally, I'm getting the signal more and more often, and my very favorite delivery of it is just the silent signal and then the walk away. I was on a flight recently, and a woman came up to me, gave me the signal, turned around, and just departed the plane, disembarked. Might have been a... uh flight attendant just telling people to get off the plane. Oh, you know what? I think it was. (laughs) (laughs) The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, a curated collection of fascinating podcasts on PRX. You can check those out at radiotopia.fm. They are made possible by the Knight Foundation. Our thanks to Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Izzy Molina for their help in making the West Wing Weekly possible. And our thanks to Dr. Leo Mascarenas, who is a great guy, and I'm so happy that we got to have him on the podcast. Thanks to Dr. Leo Mascarenas and to Children's Hospital of Los Angeles for helping make that happen. Here, here. Okay. Okay. What's next? Radiotopia. Big thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.